Hello and welcome to the Pericles Podcasting Club. So this is a project that I'm that I'm working on. Um, I'm just amazed at how much glory there is at Stanford. Everybody here is so cool. It's like you're talking, you get to know somebody for like three months, and they're like, "Yeah, I published like two books on the side." And you just you just discover that. So I wanted to create this podcast to give people the opportunity to like sort of give them their soapbox, give them the the chance to have these really cool conversations with them, and. Uh, I am absolutely elated to have my good friend Ellie on. Man, this guy, this guy's the sauce. Um, too kind. You're too kind. It's an honor. It's an honor to be here, Laura. So thank you for having me. Let's just get straight into it. So like, sure. tell me about yourself. Like, what is your origin story? What is your like superhero, supervillain? Superhero. Well, it's not much of a. It's not much of a comic book, and more of Heidi. You know Heidi, this the little kid's tale. No. Well, even better. Basically, I'm from Switzerland. I'm from Switzerland. And born and raised in the same city, the little city of Geneva. Um, And even in the same commune in Geneva, which is Chenbougerie. And then I moved to Vizna. I moved to a couple, but always in the periphery of Geneva, in the countryside. In the countryside. Yeah, in the countryside. And the more I realize, I I was raised in a fairy tale. And that's my origin story. I come right from a fairy tale... And I'm a character in a fairy tale because that's what Switzerland is like. It's, it's a total fairy tale. It's beautiful. Nothing ever goes wrong. The economy is perfect. The democracy is perfect. The judicial system is perfect. And it's just like, it's a fucking fairy tale. The atmosphere is great. So it's like... Exactly. Exactly. And so it shaped me. It shaped me to view <clears throat> life as if I was in a fairy tale. And so... I think that that's basically my origin story. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess for me, like, like I don't know. Like, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania is amazing. But I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of sucky stuff happening. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't know. I guess I partially feel like you you need like some badness to like make you wise. I don't know. I don't know. Was there like a, an adequate amount of badness in Geneva? There was no badness in Geneva, and. No badness in the sense of there was no kind of like indemnities. Mm. There was no. What do you mean by that? Like there was no crime. There was no danger. I, as a kid, I would I would all the time just you know walk to the park and play in the park and you know come back when it was sunset. It was never like be careful. There's someone that might rape you. Mm. Be careful. You might get cut. Like there was no injury. There was nothing. Nothing could possibly go wrong. It's bubble wrapped. And so, in that sense, there was no badness. And so I think you find, you find badness in a sense. And that you find, or at least it got me to really appreciate the, the flaw of human interaction. Hmm. So it's like, since you couldn't get, since life externally was perfect, there was a lot more looking inward hmm. and kind of internal lives between people hmm. that I guess you get your dose of flaw and dose of imperf- imperfect nature. I don't know. Is that what made you a philosopher? And I say that because we both took Slee together, mm-hmm. um, which is like this liberal arts program. It's like, you know, it's all about books, all about philosophy. Yeah, uh, for sure. So for I'm sure. guessing like, is, 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 is that how you got into reading or like, I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I think I, so, so viewing life as a fairy tale, I wanted, I, I realized I could make it into a fairy tale. And so I think, or I could, I could, I could keep playing into it. And that's kind of what got me into philosophy, in that 
it just gives you more tools to to create this storyline of your own. So like Nietzsche, Nietzsche, he's a philosopher. He talks about that kind of concept of like mm-hmm. using like art to make the story of your life. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I actually remember reading Nietzsche in Slee and just adoring him. I mean, save the anti-Semitic remarks because those are just never fun. But it's like you read him, you're like hell, hell yeah. Like you can totally. And I think you do. I think everybody naturally does it, whether you eat up, uh, a, you know, eat up a book or you eat up a movie and a specific character or a song. You're constantly pulling in artistic elements. Um, and we can talk about the nature of art because, mm. you know, for how this is possible. We yeah, should do that. Yeah, we should do that. I mean, uh, yeah, basically art, you, you always take in art to create yourself and to create your narrative. Hmm. I don't know how often this happens to you that you're walking around, you know, campus and all of a sudden a song comes in your head and it totally shapes and kind of changes the hue of the moment. Yeah. Right? I don't know if that ever happens to you. No, absolutely. Oh, I mean, I, I'm, I've always got my AirPods and I'm always listening to music mm-hmm. and I'm always walking around and it, it completely, the narrative completely changes, it changes what I'm remembering so mm-hmm. what I'm associating each thing in the world around me. But, like, one thing that I'm worried about is, like, isn't that, like, kind of, like, bad? And the reason why I say that is because to disassociate from the moment, it's, like, it's sort of... I feel like Stanford is such a beautiful campus, and to always be, like, one step removed in music in your head, mm-hmm. it sort of loses the fact that, like, hey, you're here in reality, and there's so much more going on. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I sometimes ask myself the same thing. You know, I'll sometimes just be biking around a whole day listening to, like, what was it? Today I was listening to to uh, a steel guitarist, Robbie Basho. And I was totally in my own head. I was in my own dreamscape the whole day. And so I had to, actually had to take out my AirPods and be like, okay, wait. Take a breath. Listen to the wind. Listen to the people walking. Listen to the sounds of the Red Hoop Fountain. Get back, Get back into Stanford. So I think you're right in that you can you can escape reality with music. But then I'd say if you're doing it less actively and you're more um, intentional, like if you're intentional about how you're listening to music and you're like, I'm going to listen to music right now and I'm going to embody it, then you're not escaping. You're just more vividly entering the, the environment. So I think it all just depends on your intention. Hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I agree. And it's the same thing with reading. Like, are you just like looking at words on a page and then suddenly you're just reading the same page over and over again? It's like, are you like being intentional, like getting every ounce out of that text? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I heard of this concept called Wu Wei. And I, I, I talked to some Chinese international students but about Eastern philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like a Taoist concept. And it's like sort of um, doing something without purpose, um, and it's sort of um, it's sort of like uh, it can be sort of transcribed as like sincerity. So it's like being present in the moment with like no like you know no instrumental value to the situation. So no like oh. I'm doing this for something. I'm doing this for something. It's more like I'm being completely sincere in like my attention here. Like um, I'm holding myself completely accountable. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and yeah, yeah. So purposelessness. Yeah, purposelessness is sincerity. Sincerity. Yeah. Huh. What do you think about that? And it it sounds wrong, right? It sounds wrong. Like, 
to have no purpose is being sincere. Yeah. It, it sounds like sincerity is a purpose and it's, and it's when you fulfill that purpose. Mm-hmm. But maybe, I don't know. But I see what you're saying because when I read, I totally, I totally lose myself to the book. Um, rarely do I read and say, okay, this is going to be for this note and this is going to be for the, you know, with the Slee essays, like <clears throat> when we read Plato, we knew that it, we'd have to write a, a paper about it. But I never, while reading it, thought about what my paper was going to be. Mm. It was just like, I'm going to read this book and I'm going to totally lose myself to it. And I often find myself forgetting the words, forgetting everything. But there's this core element that remains. And that's kind of, maybe perhaps that's what sincerity is. Mm. It's that, it's that, it's that really core, um, like internal meaning, meaning uh, without, without, sh- without being shaped. That initial ultimate feeling is sincere. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Can you explain a little bit more? I think I'm, I'm starting to get an mm-hmm. idea of it. Yeah, I think... Like, as opposed to what? So, like, you're reading something, what would be... I don't know. Yeah, so, so you're, let's, say, let's, say, let's, let's take Plato. Yes. On one hand, you can read it knowing that the prompt is going to be, uh, it was like education and justice, I yeah. think it was for us. It was like, uh, you know, evaluate and critique one of Plato's arguments on education and justice is the prompt. So either you can read the book through that, or you can just read the book. When you're reading it in the former state, you're constantly on guard and on the lookout for things that are going to help you. Mm. For things that are going to help you in your essay, for things that are going to make you sound smarter, for things that are going to get you an A. Whereas the latter, you're reading it just to read it. And it doesn't matter. I think I think in not having a purpose to reading, in not having an intention in reading, you don't... In not having an intention in reading, yeah, you don't shape your thoughts you let your thoughts come as they will and you let your impressions come as they will your your impressions are unfettered and so i think that's the difference and then and i guess that makes sense why purposelessness is sincere um i guess my one question for that and like mm-hmm. one thing like i've been sort of struggling with like on a metal on a metal level it's like okay should i go into things like like stanford with a purpose like you know i want to Okay, like the CSAI degree, you know what I want. I want to, I want to find as many opportunities as possible that help me get that. So, like, let me go to network events. Let me, let me go do the clubs, whatever. And it's like, on one hand, going at something with that instrumental purpose can help you find more things that are aligned with that. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I might go to this networking meeting. I might meet someone that I might have never ever met had I not had that purpose in mind. But at the same time, it's like, am I really getting, um am I really getting the full value of things if I have that instrumental purpose? So it's like, you know, I feel like sometimes having that intention, like with Plato, if you have that intention with education and justice, you might notice things that you might not have noticed mm-hmm. before. But are you still getting the same thing out of the book? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a really good question. As in, you know, which of those two should you do? Should you have direction and, and that pushes you further? Or should you... There's this term in French that I love. It's flâner, which literally just means kind of wandering or meandering without a single purpose it's walking outside your door 
and just going with the wind. And so it's, do you have a goal or do you flan? And frankly, I think both are just as good. That, that's the thing I've realized recently. I, I used to say, you know, at the beginning, I said you have to have a, a goal. And then with, <laughs> with quarantine and meeting Jacob and, you know, a bunch of our other fucking neo-hippie liberal friends that I, you know, I joined and I was like, nah, 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 no purpose, no purpose. You have to be boundless in your experience and every moment should be a new moment or some shit like that. And I think both, but, but now I think both are just as valid because no one's there to tell you what you should value or how you should value. It has to, it comes from within and however you value your experience, you're doing it right. And maybe that's the most fundamental lesson. It's that it's up to you. It's up to your values. So yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. So you're an existentialist. I mean, who, who isn't? Like, and what is existentialism? Am I an existentialist because I'm European and I'm born out of the roots of the fucking post-World War II? Is that what makes me an existentialist? Create your own values. Yeah, you create your own... I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you create your own values. I'm totally an existentialist. I'm, I'm joking. Um, are you an existentialist? I've been kind of, like, starting to change my mind. And here's the thing. Here's the reason why. Because, like, people are like, you know... You know, you can change at any given moment. The idea of existentialism is that any at any given moment you can change yourself, mm-hmm. right? You're you're recreated each moment, um, and I don't know. Like I have um, notebooks. I have notebooks all the way through middle school, and I look at that, and I'm like, I don't think I've really changed. And not mm-hmm. only have I not really changed, I don't think I'm that much smarter. And I feel like my mm-hmm. past me, very smart person. Like I feel like if I were in the exact same situation, had exact access to the same information. I'd probably do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I wonder, like, how much can you actually change yourself? Mm-hmm. But isn't existentialism more the possibility that you could at any moment change yourself and not the part of the, not the fact that you are at every moment changing yourself? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the possibility. It's the, it's the possibility that you could do anything, I think. It's, it's like when you, he also said once, Sartre also said, when you stand on the edge of a cliff and you look over that gut feeling of like morbidity and fear is not because of the fact you could fall off but the fact that you could throw yourself off that or rather it's not the fact that you will fall off but the fact that you could throw yourself off it's the same thing with existentialism it's at any given moment you could change because there's nothing in your way there's no God that makes suicide evil. Suicide's not a sin anymore. Nor is gluttony. Nor is pleasure. Nothing's a sin. Nothing's bad. And it's up to you to keep walking along the cliff or throw yourself off. And that, that's I think that's more the idea of existentialism. Do you find that comforting? I mean... Uh, I mean, I don't know how much... The thing is, I don't know how much I think about that. Huh. I don't know how much I think about that. Because, like, likewise, wh- when am I ever going to go and say, no, no, I'm changing myself completely? It's like what? It's, it's not like you put on a new pair of shoes and you say, okay, now I'm going to be, you know, a, a British analytic philosopher asshole. Like, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen because there are things that I prefer and things that I, I prefer less. So I don't know. But yeah, yeah, back to back to you. Back yeah, to okay, you. Okay, yeah. Okay. So for sure. Coming, like, what made you choose Stanford? I mean, I guess, like, 
Um, so, so, <clears throat> as a kid, I, so my dad went to Stanford, and so, growing up, I always heard these stories, and I totally exoticized Stanford, West Coast, Palm Drive, and I think everyone does that, yeah, right? Okay. Everyone's gotta it's love the It's the place! It's the place to be, and it's, it's like, you know, Harvard had its time in the 1800s. Yeah. Now Stanford has its time. Dinosaur, move out of the way. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, why would you, why would you put yourself through the suffering of cold weather when you have California? So I think growing up, it was always, that was always in my, and actually my, my, my conception of college was Stanford just because I didn't know any other, I didn't even know college existed in Switzerland. It doesn't, does it exist there? Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> of course. Well, it I don't know if it's something else. Like, oh yeah, yeah. It's yeah. No, it's like, it's, it's, yeah, but we have third, we have tertiary institutions. Um, but then when it came time to actually start thinking about where I was going to apply, my uncle told me about sleep. And it was set. It was set in my mind. I was like, of course I'm going to Stanford. And I'm going to give every... I'm, I'm going to put my everything into going to Stanford because I want to do this program sleep. And I remember... You actually said so you sent me a bunch of questions, right? Before yes. this interview, you kind of yeah. get me thinking about it. And one of them was, what is Stanford to me? What does Stanford mean to me? Uh, or something like that. Yeah. I think it's something like that. And I was thinking about it. And I realized that Stanford to me is the most regal reward. And that's what it is. It's it's a gift. It's a it's a trophy. It's no, it's it's a reward. And that's what I think that's why I applied to Stanford is because it's like I'm going to put all my effort to get into SLEE because SLEE is going to be the best thing you could it's ever making receive. It's making it. It's amazing. Exactly. Exactly. And so yeah. That's why I chose to go to Stanford because it'd be the best possible reward. For and reward for what? I mean, I guess doing hard work. Like, why would I? Why would I not think of it as a reward? It totally is. So yeah. What are you? What are you studying here? What are you doing right now? I mean, oh my God, I don't. I have no I'm idea. Not, I have no I'm idea. I'm with you on that. I'm with I'm, you on that. <laughs> I'm in the rubble of postly life. It's like, what am I going to do now? I've studied every book that ever exists. What am I? What am I? I know all the secrets of the universe. I know all the secrets of the universe. <laughs> Man, the amount of times people tell me I talk like a sleek kid. Yeah, same here. All right, embarrassing, but I was like, are you, what? I'm, I'm better than you. I mean, <laughs> is that is that why? Because you look up to me. Is that why you said that? <laughs> to all our listeners right now, like, fucking sleek kids, sleek kids. Um, uh, yeah. So I don't. I really. I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I think I'm gonna keep following that philosophy that Stanford is a reward, and you know, in the same way that. When you get a present, when you get a, a box of Legos as a gift, you're not going to build half of it. You're not going to empty the Lego ball, you know, empty, open the little packet of Legos, pour all of them out, and swipe 14 of, you know, four, I don't know, you're not, you're not going to swipe 40 of them under the rug and just build with the remaining. No, you're going to build with all of the pieces you have available to you because it's a gift and it just makes it more fun. And so I think that's what I'm going to do with, that's what I am doing with Stanford. It's like, use every part, use every single part of Stanford and not make the most of it for future me, but make the most of it for past me. For past, yeah. For that kid who put all of his work, you know, and like, yeah. Like, like, if my 12-year-old me could see me now, he would just be beaming. Yeah. He'd be so happy. For real. He'd For be real. Like, oh, my God. He's like, you fucking did it. You, you did it. You fucking did it, you know? 
And I tell him, yeah, but don't, you know, you got a lot of work to do, kid. Yeah. So it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like, yeah, I'm enjoying myself. You're not going to enjoy yourself. <laughs> so and so it's, it's a gift to my past self. It, it gets in. So that's why I'm going to keep enjoying it. Yeah, it's like every so often you'll just be walking around. You'll just be hanging with your friends. And you'll just be like, what? I'm here. I'm here. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. So in terms of classes, right now I'm taking peer counseling. Or, I, you know, Education 193A, I think. Basically, it's, it's the class for the bridge. Um, I'm taking that. I'm taking History of Ignorance. It's a history seminar. I'm taking printmaking and activism in the art studio. Last year you took Heidegger and Mysticism. Yes. Tell me about that. Tell me about Professor Sheehan. Because that sounded like the craziest thing. And everybody I talked to who's in that class or who's taking it, they're just like a little bit like, you know, they're like a little kooked out whenever they leave it. No, that's what Sheehan does to you. Sheehan... Sheen is an amazing professor, and I'm going to plug him right now. Sheen is an absolutely outstanding professor, and his classes consist of um, basically learning from. He he wrote a a compliment a supplement to Heidegger's Being in Time, which is way better than Heidegger's Being in Time because it actually makes sense. It's legible, and then you read a certain section, and you go to the class, and he basically. You know, he talks about the section, but he incorporates the ideas, the very analytic ideas of Heidegger into just everyday struggles. And um, Could you give an example? Sure. So he was talking about the idea of dread. Okay. Dread, which is, in Heidegger's term, in Heidegger's mind, is the idea when you realize that you are dangled you're dangled on a string in the midst of death and that everything is death you know you are living onto death basically mm. that you're you are alive everything else is dead this table is dead this wall is dead but that on living you kind of expand into it when you realize that when you realize that you get this moment of dread because you realize that you are that you're nothing that you're in, that you're nothing i mean Something like that, basically. I, I kind of forget. I get you. He, we talk about this concept, and then Sheen just goes on to to relate a story about his, you know, teenage years, growing up in the Mission District, and when he had this moment of dread, and then also what got him out of this moment of dread, and how that has affected his life. And so I think that that's really the power of his class, is that you create this little community. And you listen in the same, I, I often found myself thinking that I was, you know, a disciple listening to some wise old elder with a long ass beard because that's what it was. And so yeah, that's, I guess that's my example. Okay. And then, and then also if anyone is in that class or anyone decides to be in that class, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend to go grab coffee with Sheen because he's always willing to grab coffee and you know, it just adds so much depth to your conversations. Yeah, I really want to take it. I've heard great things about it. I'm wait. Like, is this his last year t- t- uh, teaching? Or is he no way. He's gonna keep teaching. I think his fr- the first time he taught it was last spring, and it got such good reviews that I think he's gonna keep. He's okay. just gonna keep going with it. He might change. He also does a class on James Joyce's Ulysses, which I'm. Gonna, I think I'm gonna take, um, and and also Saint Augustine. So all great, very widely different, but great 
great classes. Yeah, take take Shane's class. Okay, so back to Switzerland. Yes. Back to Switzerland. What is the craziest thing that you've seen there? Like, tell me, like, okay, you, you painted this fairy tale picture. Uh-huh. Okay, so of the things that you can say, what is, like, the most, I don't know, I guess to an American, like, that, like, you wouldn't expect? Like, what is something that's, like, yeah, yeah. A really good story. Okay, I had this, I had this, and and I had this this great great experience this summer, and so, and it, this is actually what makes me define Switzerland as a fairy tale because I had never noticed it prior, but I'm with my friends in town, and in the center of the old town, there's this park called Promenade de l'Observatoire, a beautiful little park, you know, kind of equal to a, a, a tiny version of Central Park or something. Really, just. The, the natural hot spot of the, of the city. And we're there at night after going to a bar and we sit down and we see that the whole park or, or a section of the park is a vegetable garden, has been turned into a vegetable garden. And then there's next to it, there's also a little greenhouse. So we go over to it curious and it's just this lush vegetable garden full of, you know, cabbage and lettuce and broccoli and all these amazing vegetables. And there's no fence around. But there is one sign, one little picket sign, that says, "These, this produce is for the homeless people. Please do not take any. And it's it, all that was required was this one sign, and not a single vegetable was touched. Even though probably tens of thousands of people walk through that park every day, no one touches the vegetables. No one steals the vegetables. And everyone just agrees and you know mutually kind of loves one another enough to just not touch the vegetables. And that's, that's unbelievable for a state to have that amount of trust and love with it, you know, for its citizens and between its citizens. It's community. It's community. And it's community on a huge scale. So then there's that. And then I'm blown away and I see the greenhouse. I'm like, okay, I gotta check out the greenhouse. The greenhouse naturally is fenced off because it's a greenhouse and so it has walls. But we managed with my friends to slide under one of the walls and we're in this kind of greenhouse full of crawling tomato vines. And we're just we're just fascinated. We're, we're mesmerized by how amazing the city is. We're in there and a little bit high and all of a sudden we, we see the silhouette of a cop walk outside the greenhouse. Fuck. Oh fuck! We're about to get because we there's no there's no way we weren't trespassing. Yeah. We literally had to slide under, and so he knocks on the wind wall and he says, he says, uh, "Sortez, sortez maintenant, on va parler." You know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about this. So we all slide under, ashamed. We all slide under, and he, he asks us, "What were you doing in there?" Nothing. We were just observing the plants. Uh, did you break anything? No. We we really were just there, you know, to 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 to. To like, yeah, like I said, observe the plants and we were interested and we were intrigued. He says, okay, just don't do it again. You know, go during the day, it'll be open. But at night, you know, it, it kind of, it makes my job a little harder. Don't do it again. All right, cool. Have a nice night. You too. And he walks away. And I was just blown away. I was blown away because all the shit you hear about cops in the US. Yeah. And on top of, so on top of that, there's no way that a vegetable garden could ever survive. 
And this cop was so nice. He was literally doing what the job of a cop should be. To protect and serve. And that's what he did. And there was no violence. And there was no power play. There was just like, oh, I, I recognize that you're a cop. You recognize that I'm a citizen. So I'm going to be honest with you. And in turn, you're going to be respectful to me. And just like that, nothing happened. Cop walked away. You know? And, and we just enjoyed the rest of our night. And I think that's an experience that defines Switzerland. It's crazy. It's surreal. It's a surreal fairy tale because there's no way that this works, but it does. Yeah. How do you think it like achieves that community? Because like, I just feel like at least in America, at least where I grew up, there were some great communities. Like you know, you, you got your sports clubs, you mm -hmm. got um, you know, you got church. Um, but it feels like there was not like this whole like uh, you know community by. And maybe that was just me because mm -hmm. I, I spent a lot of time in my room. I read a lot of books. But what do you think is the difference there that like allows that? Because I feel like that is something that a lot of Americans miss. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people would, some people would say like, okay, that's the rise of, at least the rise of mental illness, loneliness, more people uh, spending more time online because you replace that. Some, mm -hmm. How do you think that Switzerland, I mean, from your experience, I mean. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you have to rec recognize that Switzerland is an extremely wealthy country. You know, it's so wealthy that the minimum wage is equivalent to $30 an hour. What? Yeah, it's it's an extremely wealthy country. So that already removes a lot of the pressure. Um, and then it's also a social state. The government, you know, healthcare is free. All of this stuff is free. Um, you know, it helps in a, and it helps in many ways. But then on top of that, I think Switzerland has been, it, I think it might be one of the oldest countries because its constitution dates from the 1300s so for 700 years there's been a place called switzerland that has followed the same rules and had the same morality and that makes it makes it very old and much slower and much more balanced and i think that that helps in a lot of ways to build this community that you've just had you a community has always been fostered community has always been fostered and the legacy of you know your ancestors has made it so and you just follow follow into that into that cycle and then and it's pretty good it, it there's much less desire there's much less the way i see the u.s is that it's this it's an, it's an adolescent country and in terms of chronology if you compare it to switzerland it totally is an adolescent country and like with all adolescents there's reckless desire that's also the most powerful desire. You can you can t you can achieve the most in the U.S. You can do anything. There's no doubt about it. You can literally do anything. But because but you know in the same way that you 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 spend you you pull three all-nighters to write a paper and you crash and you burn, it's the same thing in the U.S. And I think that's part of the reason why you you have less of a community because everyone is always going and going and going and it's it's this constant fight and this rush to get on top of each other and to push the limits where Switzerland is a lot slower hmm. and it's a lot more balanced and it has a lot less desires I think that that helps um, I guess there are other things um, on top of the the financial stability there's the fact that that also there's no there's no president 
I mean, there's like seven presidents, but no one even knows who the president is. Like, I don't know who the president is. Is it um, direct democracy? It's direct democracy, hmm. um, which means that you vote for everything. And also, an individual. I, I could go, I could go, and if I get enough signatures, I could pass up a ballot to my commune, and then my state, and then the country on a federal level, to like make everyone wear purple pants. And if it everyone votes yes on it, it gets integrated into the constitution, and everyone wears purple pants. It's literally that simple. I mean, obviously, I'm dumbing it down a little bit because there's a certain amount of like to get it on the on the commune level, you have to get, you know, a thousand signatures from within your commune, um, then build it up onto the, the state level or the cantonal level. You know, it's ten thousand signatures or something. But all the time you'll be walking around the streets, and some guy will come up to you and say, "Would you like to sign this to create a uh, a referendum to increase the sizes of the minimum size of cow pens?" And just like that, two years ago, the minimum size for cow pens was increased substantially. To be more ethical to animals, so I think that's also part of the reason. You just have a lot more trust in the Swiss framework, and you you you're happy to be part of Switzerland. Yeah. So you worked on a farm. I did work on a farm. I did work on a farm. That's why cow pens are quite important yeah, yeah. to me. Tell me about that. How 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 did that happen? Okay, so sophomore sophomore year of high school, I. You know, everyone does something over the summer, right? And but I didn't have. Wait, they do something over the summer. Yeah, like like among my friends, oh, among okay, you know, it's okay. always like I didn't know if it was like a. Oh no, no not Switzerland. in the school. Yeah, yeah, no, no, among my friends and all, um, we were just, we always had kind of this tradition of doing something over the summer, um, and and summer was rolling around and I had nothing planned. You know, some of my friends were going to a U.S. university for a summer program. Others were working at a bank or working at a you know. Everyone had something planned. Meanwhile, I was reading John Steinbeck. Uh, I was reading East of Eden at that time. I've heard of that book. Yeah, East of Eden. Is it good? Honestly, it's not that good. It's like, it's good, good, but it's it's not it's it's not his best work by far. But I'm reading it, and I'm totally in love and romanticizing the American dream. And so a week before summer rolls around, my parents, furious that I had not found anything, are like, what the hell are you going to do this summer? Because you're not staying at home. You're not staying at home unless you have a job and it makes sense. One sec. Yeah. So they're, so they're fuming. And because I was reading East of Eden, I said, I'm working on a farm. And just like that, it, it, it happened. I'm working on a farm. And Who's so I... farm in Geneva? Yeah. So I call up a local farm in Geneva. Do you take interns? No. But maybe my friend does. Who's, and he passes me to a farmer in the next door canton and then across the Alps and then this and finally through this relay I get to a farmer in a random village in Fribourg which is a random canton in the middle of the country do you take interns? yeah for sure when are you coming? yeah next week okay perfect what? and just like that just like that you go to the middle of nowhere I go to the middle of fucking nowhere in Fribourg I knock on a farmhouse and I'm embraced by this elderly couple, and for the next for the summer I work with them on the farm, and I become the farmhand. And what was that like? Oh my god, it was it was life changing. It was life changing. I, you know, at first I couldn't even understand what the hell they were saying. They Fribourg speaks French. Part of, it's still part of the French side of the country, 
but it's in Swiss French, in Patois, mm-hmm. which is so incomprehensible that I the fucking first week I had no idea what they were talking about. They would tell me something to do a chore and do a task. I had no clue. But eventually I learned the tongue and I also learned the rhythm of the farm. You wake up every morning at 5.30, you walk over to the barn, you let the cows in, you put them all in their pens, um, you give them hay, you clean them, you milk them, you clean the barns, you bring the milk down to the cheese, the cheese maker, you do some other chores around the farm like like scything the scything the heel the scything the fields. You and then you have lunch. You milk the cows. You let the cows out. You bring the, the milk down to the to the cheese maker, and the day's over. And so for my whole summer, I got into this routine, into this very clear routine that was deeply integrated with nature. You wake up at 5.30 because that's when the sun rises. And that's when the cows are up. You um, you also have to put them in their specific pen. It's not just a cow goes in any pen. A cow goes in the pen. It's in its pen. And so you learn the names of these 50 cows. So do they recognize if they're in the wrong pen? Or do they... They, they're pretty good at it. But you, yeah, they, they basically know where they're supposed to go. But you also lead them and so and so you create connections with cows and you learn which i mean cows look all cows are identical cows are literally identical how do you tell them apart they have emotions and they have specific feelings and actions you know there's one cow i think her name was emma or something who was frileuse who who got cold easily and so she would often be closest to the radiator so it's like okay that there you know that that's emma then there's another one that's very rambunctious, you know, always spending time next to the bull, and that's Marianne. Slowly but surely, you get really connected to these cows. I mean, partially because you're waking up at the same time as them, but you're also, you know, you're working with them all day. You're learning their their specific emotions, their traits, and then it goes at a whole new level when you have to put a cow down, or when you have to give you have to assist in cowbirth. I mean, those are those are crazy experiences. Two things that I had to do, and so yeah, this was a life changing summer. What was the cowbirth like? Oh my god! So there's the cowbirth was crazy. There's there's a field next to the farmhouse that's on a hill, and I spent a lot of time there because I had to weed a certain flower, which I don't know, like you had to weed a specific yellow flower amongst a field of different yellow flowers because this specific one, Sinesson uh, Jacobé, causes miscarriage in cows. Mm. So I spent a lot of time in this field and I knew that the cow that was there, the, 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 the heifer that was there. So you're just on this field in the middle of nowhere looking for this one flower that looks slightly different. And for the first three hours of weeding, I, weed, I weeded the wrong flower as well. Oh my God. Which was like horrible because... I mean, there's a whole aspect to this farm that was super physical. It was a lot of physical labor, but I can even talk about that later. But anyway, I knew that this cow was, was going to give birth pretty soon. That's why they, they put the cow in this field. Because this field, even though even though there's the, the miscarriage flowers, is like the best field for the cow for some reason. So I knew that this cow was going to give birth, and it was due. And one night, I'm sleeping and there's this torrential rain outdoors and it feels like the sky is coming down on you. The wind is howling 
you know, it's shaken the foundations of this old wooden building. And I hear, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep through this torrential weather. And I look outside my window and I hear the mooing that sounds like the mooing of a calf. And I'm like, there's no fucking word. There's no fucking way. There's no fucking way. Because also, you're supposed to assist in, yeah. in, in cowbirth for reasons that are pretty that are pretty bad, you know, because you want to separate the calf from its mother so that it... But anyway, I hear it and I'm like, holy shit, there's no way. And I look outside my window and in this, in this, in this Golgotha of a day, through the trees next to a creek, I see the mother and its baby sheltering, sheltering, you know, the baby sheltering against the mother to protect again in this crazy storm. And so I put on my Crocs and in my underwear, I run out to the middle of the field and, you know, there's like a lightning crash right next door. And it, I swear, it feels like the whole world is about to swallow me up. But I'm running, I'm running, I jump the electric fence and I run across, there's a little, I run across the bridge that crosses the creek and I go up to these cows and I try and coax, I try and, and I run, I, I'm just blown away. I'm blown away how life can be created even in the most turbulent kind of horrific times. I mean, I was I was a fucking main character. I was a main character. Main character. But I wasn't the main character. The cow was the main character. Because imagine, imagine giving birth all alone amidst this amidst this storm when everything feels like it's going to collapse on you but you still give birth and you create a beautiful child a beautiful calf and you nurture it and you protect it and even when i showed up there to to bring them inside in the shelter because now you know, obviously you you want to put them in you want to bring them in even when i showed up this shivering cow surmised all its force to protect its young and it was going to charge me if i stepped any closer to it it would have charged me and i just that, that was my experience with cowbirth um it was it was unbelievable dang. It was unbelievable dang i still can't get over the fact that this is in the middle of nowhere someone like randomly a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend middle of nowhere like what if you like they try to kill you or something Switzerland. It's a Switzerland. fairy tale. Switzerland. 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 It's Switzerland. I mean, they could have, but they. I love them. I, I, I went to visit them this summer. I hadn't seen them in four years. And I went to visit them. How were they? They were so happy to see me. And I was so happy to be back. I, you know, I went to the farmhouse and I just knocked on the door. And they were having lunch. And I sat down and it was just... I mean, this is my family. This is... They, they embraced me. So... They were so generous. In the way they took me in, and they gave me a bed and a shelter. In exchange for what? In exchange for me giving them, you know, a short holiday, because I could take over, you know, half of the work, three quarters, two thirds of the work. They became my family, and so coming back to see them, I actually told them that I wrote a story about this farm, and that story got me into Stanford. And that I am now studying in the most prestigious university in the world, all thanks to them. 
and all thanks to the opportunity that they gave me in this little farm in Vogel, in Fribourg, all Suisse. And so it was, it was an amazing experience. And that's something I, I tell everyone to do. Go back to those people who mean stuff to you. Even if it's, you know, don't, or, or I'll rephrase that. Always, always make sure to show people how much you appreciate them. Because, like, what do you have to lose? And it, it, I don't know. It creates such a better connection. Yeah, anyway. I love these guys. I fucking love these guys. Oh, my God. And they gave me, they gave me, well, as I was leaving, Martin, Mama Martin, which is the, which is the, the elderly woman, gave me 200 francs, which is huge. 200 francs. And I, and I, you know, so What's of course, that in U.S. dollars? 200 francs in U.S. dollars is probably 250. 250. 250, which is huge. That's a lot. Huge. And th- to think that they're also farmers. They're also farmers who make cheese. I mean, that's not an extremely lucrative business. And I was, I, I, of course I refused. I didn't want to accept, but I did in the end because she was persistent. And then she said, I know how hard college is. You know, this is so you can treat yourself and your friends to a nice meal. Anyway, that's, that's, that's my praise for these, these farmers. And I think to answer your question, you asked me another question, which was, what do I think wisdom is and what do I think yes. character is? Yes. The wisest and um, the most consummate people I know are those farmers. farmers. They, Martin and Gabi Rock, are the embodiment of wisdom and character. So, yeah. Wait, so how did it change you? Like, like before and after? I mean, before, after, like, it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not binary. It's, you, you accumulate these skills and little by little, they make an impression and they change and they kind of alter you. But I think it's, it was for the first time in my life, I absolutely slowed down. And the only thing that mattered was this, was the day. And even in the scale of the day, each day was exactly the same. Each day was this routine that I told you. It sounds horrible. It sounds horrible. It's like it's like it's monotonous and and all this shit. But it's amazing. I was the happiest I've ever been on the farm because it was the most human. It was the most no no human was ever supposed to work nine to five, but in reality nine to nine on 50 million different projects to get a paycheck to then be able to do more projects and do more and more and and go on this infinitely accelerating treadmill it's not human humans are meant to you know be happy in the summer and have sex in the winter like that's that's what it is <laughs> and huddle together in the winter that's it and we're supposed to be a part of nature because we are a part of nature and Being on the farm showed me that. Actually getting back to nature showed me that. I had no more desires when I was on the farm. You know, I didn't I didn't desire going going out and consuming a bunch of drugs and getting absolutely fucked up, or I didn't desire to go see, you know, a concert and then after party. I, I didn't have all these desires. My only desire was food when food came. And 
conversation and to get my job done and get a good night's sleep. And it wasn't that I was deluding myself. It was that that's just, it felt, it felt good. And those hours that I spent on the farm, because near the end of the summer, when I got really good at the tasks, I basically did everything alone. All the driving, I mean, I didn't have a license or anything, but all the driving, all the farm work I did alone. And those hours of monotony became hours of meditation and hours of contemplation. I remember distinctively one time I was weeding a field and a memory of an argument I'd had came into my head where I'd argued with this guy in my grade and I just thought over what I said. I thought over what he said. I thought, oh, this is what I should have said, as everyone does. I was, you know, you're always yeah, like, oh, yeah, I should yeah. have said this. And then I and then I stopped. And I said, No. If anything, I should have said this. But the reality is, it doesn't matter. And I came to peace with this argument that created friction in my memory. This argument that made me doubt myself in a certain way. And just let it go. And that happened a lot. In that state of meditative monotony, I was able to just let go. And things that I was looking forward to, like, I, of course I, I missed home. And I was looking forward to going home. I was looking forward, there was this, there was this, uh, this girl that I had totally fallen for that summer, right before I left. And so I was really looking forward to seeing her. And it meant so much more. And everything, every human, every connection meant so much more. I remember listening to music for the first time on the train back. I was listening to a Tyler's Tiny Desk concert. And each, each, um, how do you say, uh, each, each sound and each vocal and each lyric meant so much more. I was able to truly appreciate the emotion and the, the humanity of actions. And I think that's how it, 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 it brought me that new skill. And it brought me that new awareness and attunement. And I think that's how, it, that's how the farm changed, changed me. Do you miss that? Or do you think you, you still bring that with you? I did miss it for a long time. I, that the rest of the summer was was really nostalgic for me. I had still had like, what, maybe three weeks of summer. And it was really nostalgic to me. I just, I, I missed being on the farm and I missed that state of monotony and I missed the humane, the humanity and I missed, and I missed how nothing mattered all that much. But eventually I, I think, yeah, I, I gained it and I brought it with me. And I was able, and I'm still, I'm still trying to integrate this way of life into my Stanford life. And I think it's really hard at Stanford because the the pace is so high it is very fast it's very fast and so i think it's hard at stanford to do it but it is doable it is doable like yesterday i yesterday right before dinner i sat on a knoll we have like this little knoll outside of ebf and one of my friends julia was 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 cloud bathing there and so i cloud bathed next to her and then jacob came what does that mean, cloud bathing? Well, it's like sunbathing, except for it's way more fun because you're you're looking at the clouds. Okay. You know, you're looking at the beautiful clouds drift on by. And so there, I was able to let go, and I picked up a book, 
and we all just kind of read and cloud bathed and calmed down and let go of the, the speed of the day. So it is doable. It totally is doable. But it's hard. It's hard because everyone has, everyone is so motivated, which you gotta love. You gotta love being I, part of it. I, I, it is glorious. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite book? My favorite book. Oh. Um. That's a hard one. You know mine. I know yours. You I know, know yours. I know you yours. Know um. Oh God, it, it's it always changes. It always changes. But I think okay, I'll give I give my top three. I'll give my top three, and these are the top three that all that the really the most pivotal books. It's Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf of Herman Hesse. Hundred Years of Solitude of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and. The Unbearable Likeness of Being of Kundra. I haven't read that, but I keep hearing people talking about that book. Now, th- if this isn't a reason to read it, you I have to read it now. I have to read it. I'll, get, I'll give you my copy. I'll oh. give you my copy. You need it. It's a oh. great book. Tell me about it. Or without spoilers. God, I don't even remember. I'm going to be honest. I don't remember it. Okay. I read it three years ago now, so I barely remember it. Um, I just remember it being good. And I remember enjoying the fact that it, it clearly demonstrates a dichotomy. One where life is unbearably light, or like one where life is light and is taken lightly and, and the kind of um, absurd, Nietzschean, nothing matters. And the other where life is taken with extreme weight, with extreme heaviness. Also the absurd Nietzschean, nothing matters, but where you take all of, all of that onto yourself, where you carry the weight of the world on yourself. And it, it presents both of them in terms of a couple. And it just goes through their life and how each one is impacted by either weightlessness or weightfulness. It's very funny. And it's kind of up to you to, to decide which one you want. But it comes to the conclusion that in the end, regardless of which one you take, which path you decide to take and how you decide to, to affront life, in the end, there's just love. There's just love, and that's it. It's like the Andrew. It's like the Andrew Marvell poem. It's what you know. What remains of us is love. Do you take life very seriously? Or? Way too seriously. Dude, same, Way too seriously. Same here. Oh my god. I'm like, man. It's like you know, like you know. I get a a rejection letter from like a, a company I'm applying to. I'm like, ah, I don't really care. That night, I'm like, uh. <laughs> bottle your emotions, bottle your emotions. <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, jeez, no, I take life way too seriously, and I think I think I take myself too seriously. Mm. I'm like, so often I'm I get mad at myself for for feeling a certain way. I get mad at myself for feeling sad after a breakup. I get mad at myself for for being stressed for an assignment. And then I get mad at myself for not completing the assignment because you're stressed. And I get mad at myself for another, you know, all these worries. And why? Why? Because I want to pedestalize myself. Because I want to make myself so good. And it's just so stupid. It's futile. It's, it serves no purpose. Because in the end, no matter how high you build yourself and how strongly 
you know, how strong your muscles or whatever, your, your, your metaphysical muscles. Metaphysical. Like, you're not going to enjoy life. And then you're going to die. And fuck, like you wasted your whole time being stern when you could have laughed a bunch, kissed a bunch of people, uh, you know, had some great conversations, made some incredible decisions. And in the, like in The Unbearable Lightness of Being, in both cases you die. And in both cases, you know, you, you turn into dust that gets kind of blown through the air. But in one of the cases, you had a, you had a, a painful existence. In the other case, you had a really fun existence. And personally, I'd much prefer to have a fun existence. Which is why you gotta take yourself, you can't take yourself seriously. Like, who are you to take yourself seriously? What are you, the chosen one? Like, the chosen one for real? You're the, you're the chosen one? Like, you're the only person that gets scared at death? For real? You're like, fuck off. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. Sometimes it's kind of fun being dramatic with it, where it's like... Oh, it's great it's to be like, dramatic. It's like, oh my god, my life is falling apart. <laughs> you listen to the sad music, and you're like, ah! Yeah, and it's but, like, it feels kind of good. Yeah, but are like, you taking... In that instance, I, th- I think there's an... There's an taking yourself not seriously does not mean everything is good. Hmm. It's not... They're not... They're not mutually inclusive. Um, wait, that's the wrong word. I don't know. Basically, you don't, that, those are not the, the, they're not directly equal. Yeah. Taking yourself less seriously is also putting on the sad, the sad music and looking out of the rainy bus window and thinking you're the main character. You're not taking yourself seriously. There's no way you do that and you actually think, whoa, I'm the main character. It's like, no, you know that you're mocking it. You know that you're mocking it and you're just, you're just adding spice to life. So you can totally fucking do that. I, you know, like I'll totally, I'll totally put on Sufjan Stevens and stare at my ceiling and cry. Like it's, it's still fucking funny. It's like, like oh, misery, misery, you know, and read some, some John Keats or whatever. And like, as long as you take, as long as you realize you're mocking it. Yeah. It's like, you know, went to a party last night, pretty lame, Faisai. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Faisai's good. Faisai's great. Faisai's great. Faisai's great. I just personally have a good time. And I'm walking out and I'm listening to Lucid Dreams. I'm like, ah, I still see your shit. And it's like, it's like, I'm not taking myself seriously at all. But it's, it's well, I'm like, kind of serious. You're kind of serious. You're kind of serious, but it's, it's fun. Yeah. It's definitely really it's fun. fun. It's, it's fun. Really fun. As long as you're having fun. As long as you're having fun. Yeah. I think you got to hate the Western world for that. Hmm. For making us forget that we are allowed to have fun. I think you got to hate them. I feel like the Eastern world is having a ton of fun. Well, in my exoticization of it, yeah. Yeah, in your exoticism. <laughs> in my exoticism, there. Which, I'm sorry, but, you know. There are worse things to be exoticized. For. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. What's next, do you think? After Sanford, what do you see yourself way in the future? Oh, what does fuck. it look like? Uh, okay. What, what, what are some things that you feel like you have to do? Like, even if you don't know the grand picture, what do you think has to be there? has to be done okay i have to i absolutely have to sail across the atlantic why why is your question yeah why oh no i have to sail across the atlantic because it's the easiest um ocean crossing it's the easiest the safest ocean crossing and you get to cross an ocean you get to for three weeks see nothing see nothing but blue dark blue and light blue it's like a nightmare and that's it 
Yeah, it is a nightmare. <laughs> but then it... Because I think humans... We have a very powerful visual cortex. And that helped us evolve from primates in a lot of ways because we were able to survive, you know, smaller... We were able to more acutely see things like berries and see things like snakes, which are both big evolutionary pressures. But our visual... But we rely so way too heavily on our visual cortex. And I think that sailing across the Atlantic is not only going to be monotony, but it's going to be visual monotony because there's going to be nothing new. At a certain point, your eyes are going to mean nothing because there's no difference. You look up, down, east, west, north, south, you know, anything, it's not going to make a difference. And that's kind of what I want to experience. I want to experience... It feels like hell on earth. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. It's horrifying, but is that hellish? That it's horrifying? I don't know. Like there are worse things. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's going to be amazing. I think I want to do it with my stepdad. So I really want to get to know him um, on an extremely intimate level. Um, and also, have you ever sailed? I've never sailed. Sailing get, is, is also, sailing is romanticized. Sailing is romanticized to being like, like Dolce Vita in the south of Italy. But sailing is an amazing sport because you're, you're crossing distances at crazy speeds using nothing but the wind you're literally becoming a little one of the little bath toys for the wind it's amazing it's amazing and so you know i'm gonna get to sail i'm gonna get to sail i'm gonna get to see the most beautiful skies i've ever seen i'm gonna get to go back into that state of monotony that i felt in the farm but in a new way at an extra depth of challenge I'm gonna get to, to truly understand somebody that's important to me. And three weeks later, I'm gonna be a fucking badass nautical man, like Captain Nemo. Captain Nemo, Captain Rhymer. Mm. And if that ain't gonna help me get bitches, I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> rugged, <laughs> a rugged sailor. Sailor. <laughs> what else? What else? What mm. else is on my? I don't really have, that's kind of my main bucket list goal. But then I have my ultimate goal in life and my ultimate um, actionable goal. Something that I actually can can hold myself accountable to is that I want to be the best host I can possibly be. Host. That's all all that's going to matter to me. Because I think... In, in the more metaphysical and like lofty goal is to give more love than I took from the universe. That on an actionable level is to be a great host because that's a way that you can create community and you can create love and you can foster, you can foster it. And I think that's just what I want to be. If I can, yeah, and I, think that, and I think honestly, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Obviously, I want to do other things along the way. Yeah. And I'm sure there's better, there's more ways to 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 give more love and be more impactful in that way. But on a very personal level, I think it's to be a good host because that's what you do as a good host. You you create love and you create memories. And I'm so grateful for all of the great hosts I've had in my life. 
That's my goal. My life goal at the moment. To be a great host. It's a pretty good goal. Thanks. Thank you. One question I have is, what do you think is the biggest problem? And this can be an external, it can be an internal problem that you're working on that you think other people are working on that you don't quite have an answer to. Just a problem. Mm -hmm. I think it's how can we, how can we, how can we rectify the balance, the equilibrium in the universe at the point we are at as a species? In what sense? In the sense that we have, we are so industrious and we are so creative that we've been able to create way more humans than ever was sustainable in the balance of the, of the earth. Ever was sustainable in the ecosystem because we are part of the ecosystem. And I think we've forgotten that, but we are part of the ecosystem. And But we've taken so much. We've taken so much and... We've created way too many humans. We have tons of humans. You sound like Thomas Malthus. I don't know who that is. Oh, he's overpopulation guy. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. What is his re- What is his response to overpopulation? Um, well, he was like, you know, we have too many people, and this is before the. Do you know the Green Revolution? Oh, well, it was yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, 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 in the 60s. before that. Yeah. He was like, the way we're looking at there's going to be too many people. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to eat our children. And like, you, <laughs> like you know the the one um, satire. It was like a modest proposal. He's like, okay. Um, it, it was about like wealth inequality and he was like, you know, there's not enough food. So why don't we just start eating the poor or something like mm-hmm, that? Mm-hmm. So I was like, but anyway, continue yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, continue. he's got the right idea, but then the issue is I, we can't be killing humans. To, yeah. I mean, we could, honestly, we could, we could just kill a bunch of humans and get back to the balance, but I'm, that's, that's a cop out and I'm more curious and I'm more motivated to see how we can rectify this balance and maintain as many humans as we have, we are now. How can we do it? And this, this takes, this is like a multifaceted problem where there's infinite phases to it. There's environmental, there's communal, there's political, you know, any coal that you have, any word that ends with coal, there's that face to it. But I think that overall it's that. And it's, you know, how are you gonna approach that? Are you gonna become an author? and write a book that changes people's perspectives on, you know, um, environmental interaction? Are you become a policymaker? Are you gonna gonna become a a local chef? But that's that's the biggest problem we face now. Because there's, there, and the the big, even worse than that, is that there's totally planet B. You know, there's that slogan, there's no planet B, the environmentalist slogan. The problem is there totally is a planet B. I have no doubt that humans would be able to find a planet B. But is that the solution we really want? Do we really want to just destroy another planet, eventually destroy another planet? Why don't we stop and accept that this is our planet and try and harmonize ourselves with it, try and make peace with it? Yeah, so... That's, that's, that's our problem. That's our biggest problem, that we can't accept we're part of this planet. I mean, so many of us can't even accept that we are who we are. It's like, 
no no shame on plastic surgery, but like, bro, for real, just the fuck. Um, I mean, like for me, like you know, I personally get like you know, hey, if you want to be the most beautiful you want to be, it's like, and you've got the money, why not go for it? But at the same time, it's like the kind of sentiment that you're getting at is that it's like you know, why, you know, why go to such extremes to like prove that like you're enough, right? Yeah. But it's like. I don't know because there's some people who are like they're bullied about their nose for example and they're bullied from like elementary school to high school and it's gotten to the point where that even if people aren't bullying them like it's like they're thinking about it all the time Mm -hmm. and it's like are they supposed to just like you know live with that yeah no I've I think I think cosmetic surgery first of all I I should probably said it probably prefaced my entire um, you know guest appearance on this show with I'm European, and in Switzerland we tend to make these big claims, but they don't mean, they're not as genuine and as, and as adamant as I think claims are here. When I say that, like, when I mock cosmetic surgery, I do not mean that all people who do cosmetic surgery are mockable and are reputable. No, are reprimandable. I think, but I think there is, there is something like what you're, you're saying. Like, why don't you think you're enough? But... Or, or more, it's it's more. Why do why does be, why is beauty defined by the general consensus, and why do you fall into those categories? I don't know, but you're right. You're right. If you're bullied all your life because of your nose, you can totally change your nose. You can totally change your nose. I mean, you shouldn't have to live with suffering. But again, that goes to the same root that like we. You're also in doing that. You're also fueling. Um, an ideal standard rather than in the same way that like we're fueling an ideal human life rather than accepting human life as it is you know so there's two sides you know there's the practical and there's there's the conventional side to this problem and the ideal side to this problem so but yeah like we shouldn't, we shouldn't have an idealized standard of beauty. And we shouldn't have an idealized standard of life. I fucking hate ideals. I think ideals are stupid. I think... You don't think that striving for something is good? Sorry? You don't think that striving for something is good? Yeah, but ideal? why does that have to be an ideal? Hmm. Why is the ideal perfect? And why is the ideal the same for everything? Why is there only one ideal? I mean, isn't that, like... Um, yeah, I think, I think that I struggle, I struggle now with the concept of ideals because I've, I've realized that ideals always come with a promise. Ideal state, you know, comes with the promise of like, like searching an, an ideal state is always presented in terms of making you search like seek that ideal state yeah and seeking that ideal state is always um is always sweetened by a promise seeking the ideal in christianity is sweetened by heaven seeking the ideal in uh you know buddhism is that you can break out of the cyclic nature and that you can finally you know end all suffering or seize, see, have the cessation, not of all suffering, the cessation of all 
problematic things, you know, it's always, or even in Judaism that doesn't promise kind of spiritual perfection. It's, it's that the promise is your grand, your, 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 your great grandchildren will be abundant and have, you know, you're prosperous. There's always a promise. And I'm just, I just find it kind of hard to, to, to accept that. Like, who are you to tell me there's a promise? Who are you to tell me there's something better? And like, I, I don't buy Pascal's wager. I just don't buy it. I don't buy that it's better off to, 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 to close your life now for something that you're not sure about in the future. I think you have to live every day as it is today. And so that's why ideals are kind of stupid. But can't that be like hedonistic? You're like, oh, let me ruin my life today for pleasure. And what of it? What about tomorrow? What what if what if there are people you're responsible for? What if you have a child? You know? But you should be responsible for them. I believe in. I also believe in innate goodness. I believe in flaw. I believe in the imperfect. I believe in the useless. But I think it's good. I think that. I think that if you if everyone, you know, okay, so there. Let me. This is the way I like to think about it. Okay. If you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? I don't know. So much. Like, Think I, about it. If you were going to die tomorrow and truly embody this question, if you're going to die, if I told you, if right now I'm telling you that you're going to die tomorrow, so what are you doing with the rest of your day? Well, I mean, I'd be sending so many of my friends and my old teachers, like just letting them know that, you know, I love them. It's like, you know, I wish like, you know, I could do more to make them proud. For like all the effort they put in to like, you know, get me to this point. Um, I don't know. I have a bunch of ideas that I want to write. So I'd probably like, probably write it and then, I don't know, put it somewhere online. So at least it's out there in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't, yeah. Um, Anything else? Try to, try to make some things right with some people. Probably mm -hmm. send a couple messages out. Um, maybe write some letters. Um, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think I'd do that. Was there any badness, any evil in anything you just decided to do? I don't know. No, there was none. All you did there was spread love and, and open yourself up in vulnerability, in true vulnerability and true humanity hmm. to the world. And that's, that's the way I like to see it. You know, I've never heard anyone, and I'm, I'm sure that I say this and someone's going to contradict me because humans are dicks, but when you, when you hear this, it's like, no, I would tell my parents I love them. I would go watch a sunset. I'd have sex. I'd eat some food and I'd listen to a really good album and, and then I'd die. No one ever does anything bad. No one ever says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go you know, pillage, rape, burn a bunch of cities because they're not converting to my belief of what happens when you die. No one ever says that. And that's why, I'm, that's why I just don't believe in ideals. And that's why I think you, have, you should live every day. Because that, in that way, in that question is literally forcing you to carpe diem, right? Did you do anything hedonistic? Not hedonistic, really. nothing. I mean, you did do hedonistic things because it made you happy. But 
it didn't make anyone unhappy in making yourself happy. And that's why I think the argument against hedonism is flawed. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, yeah. tell me about the book of important words. Oh, so I brought, I brought, um, I brought a, uh, this little, this little journal I have. It's, it's, it's kind of a pocket book. It, you know, fits in the palm of your hand, um, or fits in your hand. And I, I, it's kind of a relic from pre-quarantine because I had, I didn't, I didn't bring it with me last year, which I should have like Slee has a bunch of important words, but it just, it's just, as I read books, um, I would write down my favorite lines in this book. And so I thought it'd be cool to, to bring it. Yeah. Sure. Um, a couple lines. Do you want to, you can pick anyone. Okay. Pick anyone. Pick anyone. I'll read it out. So this comes from this comes from The Quiet American by Graham Greene. Innocence always calls mutely for protection when we would be so much wiser to guard ourselves against it. Innocence is like a dumb leper who has who has lost his bell, wandering the world meaning no harm. Yeah. It's a good. That's a good one. It's a good one. Well, let me pick another one. Pick yeah, yeah, pick another one. Okay. That one. Okay. This, oh, that's a good one. This comes from the Zhuangzi, which the best book ever. Do read it. Okay. Now, Lazy rode forth upon the wind, weightlessly great, graceful, not heading back until 15 days had passed. He did not involve himself in anxious calculations about bringing good fortune to himself. Although this allowed him to avoid the exertions of walking, there was still something he needed to depend upon. But suppose you were to chariot upon what is true, both to heaven and to earth, riding atop the back and forth of the six atmospheric breaths, so that your wandering could nowhere be brought to a halt. You would then be dependent on what? Thus I say, the consummate person has no fixed identity, the spirit man has no particular merit, the sage has no one name. I'll read some more Zhuangzi, because I love him. If you regard what you have received as fully formed once and for all, unable to forget it, all the time it survives is just a vigil spent waiting for its end. Hmm. So I, those two quotes, actually, I'll, I'll kind of explain what they mean to me. Um, basically, if you think that you are one thing and that you have one purpose and that you have one goal, and this goes back to what we said at the very beginning, yeah. then all the time you spend doing whatever you do with that one end goal in mind is just a, a vigil. You're just, you're just a vigil waiting for death because having a goal means that you've created yourself as fully formed. It means you have basically no room to do anything else. If you go through your whole life, you know, and this is a stupid example, but let's say you go through your whole life thinking that you're, that you're to be a plumber and you plumb and you plumb around and you do the way the plumber does. You're basically not doing anything until you die. You're basically already dead. 
So, and the same thing with the with the the, the idea of latency. It's the same thing. It's if you have no name, if you have no particular merit, um, if you have no fixed identity, then you're then you can be anything, and you can be everything, and you can ride atop the winds in any way you want, wandering far and unfettered. So I love these two quotes. Do you want to hear another? Yes. And this, I, this is a shout out to Polis. He's the one that showed me this one. But perhaps a great awakening would reveal all of this to be a vast dream. Oh, wait. And yet fool... Okay, wait, let me restart that. Perhaps a great awakening would reveal all of this to be a vast dream. And yet fools imagine they are already awake. How clearly and certainly they understand it all. This one is a lord, they decide. That one is a shepherd. What prejudice! Confucius and you are both dreaming. And when I say you're dreaming, I'm dreaming too. So if you were to agree with these words as right, I would say, I would say that nothing, I would, I would call that nothing more than a way of offering condolences for the demise of, the strange, of their strangeness. For actually, even if some great sage shows up after 10,000 generations who knows how to unravel them, it would still be as if he arrived after only a single day. It's a good quote. It's a good quote. As long as he goes hard. As long as he goes fucking hard. And this is my favorite one. This is actually the, the thing that has defined me for the past, well, since I've read it. How so? Because I just read it and it made sense. And I guess it's my... I added it to my compass, to my personal compass, and in my actions, it just, it does guide me a little bit more. Um, basically, there are two great constraints in this world. One is fate, one's mandated limitations, and the other, other is responsibility, doing what fits one's position. And this kind of goes against existentialism, because it shows that you can't do everything. You can't fly and you can't stop thinking certain things. You can't not love your parents. You're bound to love your parents. And you're also, you know, that that's something that you just can't not do. And so I think that this is, it's good to have a little caveat to existentialism that you can do everything within the bounds of possible. And there is things that are impossible. It's impossible. I believe, I, I believe and all of you mystics can come at me. It's impossible to be part of the oneness and still be yourself. It's a, you can't, you can't be yourself and be nothing at all. So that's a constraint. It's a, it's a limitation of our, our, it, it's what we're fated. We're fated to that limitation. So I just love this quote. I just adore this quote. Yeah. I think uh, this is a good place to end it. I think this is a great place to end it. Thank you so much for coming on, Ellie. Thank you for having me. You've been a wonderful host. Dude, you are a wonderful host. I'm not I'm not I know, shit. I know. <laughs> You're going to be a wonderful host. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you. All right. Well, thank uh, you guys for listening. And uh, I'll end it here.